32 counties united by people. My name is Una. And my name is Andrea. And this is United, united Ireland. Ireland. Every week on United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about. This week's question, why is the gorse on fire? Stories like this really depress me, but and I often slip into avoidance mode, but no, have to confront it. Like in recent years, I suppose, like we, we've watched on in horror as vast tracts of the Amazon rainforest and the Australian bush and the Californian canyons have been ravaged by wildfires. But in Ireland, we're also in the midst of an ecological and biodiversity disaster, basically, uh, with gorse burning season, um, which is human instigated for the for not for the most part, it is. Um, and that's destroyed animal habitat, nesting grounds, animals themselves, plants and trees. Gorse fires have been raging in Ireland recently, and there doesn't seem to be the kind of scale of outcry that there needs to be to stop this stuff from happening. So in this episode, we'll discuss why these gorse fires are happening, what's the impact and who can be held responsible and how can we just get better and stop this shit. I was thinking... Uh, when we were talking about gorse fires, about what we could call this podcast. And I think we could call it Big Farm A. Oh, that's a good one. F-A-R-M dash A-H. Of course, if you are from the northwest of this country, uh, you won't know what we're talking about because the bushes we'll, we're referring to are whin bushes. Whin bushes to the good folks of Donegal anyway. Did you know that? <laughs> no. That's what I found out from Sarah. We're, we're driving in Donegal. She's like, oh, the wind bushes. I'm like, what? They're gorse babes. Okay, like, well, <laughs> here's a secret. I don't even know what a gorse looks like. You know it. I you're, don't. You like, you spent most of lockdown in Wicklow. They're the bushes okay. with the little yellow flowers. I'll Google it. Okay. This podcast runs entirely on the fuel generated by Patreon. Put some petrol in our tank uh, or solar power in our panels over patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. Things we've learned about our listeners this year, Andrea, what would they be? Off the top of your head. Off the top of my head. God, I would say they're a pretty chill bunch who like smart stuff. One. One. What else? Um, God, I'd say they're pretty much above average in good looking sticks. Mm, True. Anything else? Mm, I'd say... Uh, there is a good amount of them who are pretty sound and give us three euro a month and that we love them for it. Yes. And if more, a month, like every uh, three euro a month. If but, more people did that, that would be fab. If you're listening to this, to this podcast and you like what you hear and you've liked other podcasts and you want to give us three euro a month, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, do listen to our 32 questions with Alan Kelly this week, uh, the Labour Party leader. We've got a really big reaction from that, um, from people, I think, who are surprised at getting an insight into this guy's personality and his politics. Um, a little bit at odds with how he's sometimes represented in media, actually. Um, we I just got loads of people responding on my Instagram going, God, I really like Alan Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He doesn't get much um, space in media beyond his uh, stuff in the doll, really. So this is a, is a very interesting uh, insight into where he's at. Um, so three euro a month, 
for uh, supporting us to keep interviewing politicians and uh, showing a different side to the news and issues and media. We would be very grateful. And for now, it's the State of the Nation. Okay, so obviously major news oh this week. Oh my gosh. Um, you're close to, well, you're buzzing. Okay, so let, let's let, look. Everyone is scrambling. Things are opening back up. Nefesh uh, have, have, you know... Uh, taken a chill pill. <laughs> taken a chill pill. And they are accelerating some of the easing of restrictions. Now, I was kind of, I think, first of all, like the feeling that, I'm not ready. I'm not ready for the new world. Is it even the new world? I have so many anxieties about the future. But then also a happy, of course. Um, but a little bit concerned about how this messaging will be framed. Like, will it be like, yeah, everybody gets this present. Woohoo, party time. And the streets turn into sewers and the cases go back up. Or will it be framed as, look, we're l- able to do this because we're all good uh, and but you need to keep this show on the road and don't be gone mad and having parties in each other's houses. But um, how are you feeling, Andrea, as one of the um, small business owners uh, that has been so uh, terribly affected throughout this last year? Um, we've been on a roller coaster because it was like, yeah, you're going to be opening like the last matching for the last while has been like maybe the end of May, probably June. Then suddenly it was like, okay, next Tuesday. It was like, sorry, what? Excuse me? Like, that's like in four days. What? We have roaches to do. Um, but obviously I was like, stunning. Because you, you'll make that shit happen after a year of not having an income. Uh, but then obviously there is somebody uh, in the beauty industry on that committee because it's like, actually, we're going to push that back to the 10th because obviously there's logistics involved. So I'm absolutely buzzing. I just hope that the messaging moves on from um, wash your hands, keep your distance to more uh, ventilate your like spaces, open your windows, uh, get air cleaners. We implemented all that for the last opening. So that's why it was extra frustrating when we shut so we do have air cleaners and focusing on that messaging and the way the, the virus is actually spread rather than like washing, de- sterilizing everything intensely and blah, blah, blah. So that's my main concern. But I am very happy for stage one. And I think I do think the way that it's been uh, done is now, obviously, I'm coming at this from a very selfish perspective. I'm like, yeah, I think what they've done is great. We're opening next week. Uh but in terms of the steps to do it, it's not all at once. So it's like, okay, we have the beauty industry opening up um, and then uh, inter-county travel so people can go and see their families. But then hotels aren't opening up till after the bank holiday weekend. And then, da, da, da. so I do think that the messaging will be a kind of staggered approach as opposed to, okay, we're out of this, let's go fucking mental. Mm. Sorry, mom, for cursing. She always goes out to me. <laughs> I hope I hope uh, people keep the heads together and that it is not a bumpy ride. But I also think that people are all, are are kind of pent up and 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 want a bit of relief as well. I think we really need outdoor um, hospitality because big time. Yeah. Everyone is like everyone's having dinners in each other's houses now. It it just is. So because there's nowhere else to go, like you can't. There's only so many times you can walk around the block with people and people are meeting. 
Um, so I really think hospitality and also like I'm really excited that we're opening and I'm not taking anything for granted till it's announced later on, but shout out again to the entertainment and hospitality industry who are, who are still kind of a, a bit to go. I, my heart does go out to them. But as you say, Andrea, and you've been on this from the get-go with your own business and, and just in general, it's all about ventilation. It's all about outdoors. That is the key as well as the things that we know around distancing and masks. So everybody keep that in your head. Outdoor, you know the score. In other news, Owen Murphy, um, friend of the pot, no, <laughs> um, former housing minister, resigned as a TD. Uh, he's got other things to do, let's face it. Uh, moving on With to bigger, weapons. <laughs> bigger bigger, and better things than, you know, um, representing the constituency who voted for him a year ago. Uh, now, I'm not going to say anything about Owen Murphy. I've written a lot about him over the years, about housing policy in the city and so on. Um, Can I say something about him? Go on. I think the fact that what, as soon as he resigned, that was the moment he cho- chose to say that co-living was a big mistake couldn't have said that maybe like a year ago. Yeah, it was very difficult to listen to the interview with Claire Byrne because there's always been this framing and from other politicians as well, not even in Finnegal, people who would have opposed his housing policies that, you know, he was, you know, a smart guy. And it's like, well, okay, he's our, he's he's articulate um, and he has a, a posture of, you know, young professionalism. Um but the intelligence was not evident in housing policy and where people were roaring and shouting about what the consequences of his interventions were going to be. Uh, other people seem to be smart in that respect. And uh, we are we are dealing with uh, the consequences of decisions that he made along with the decade of Fine Gael and Power and Housing. Um, and so I don't think that should be forgotten. And it is still a housing and homelessness and rental crisis. Uh, now, mind you, though, the drama-rama that is going to be the by-election that's going to follow this. Uh, it's already a drama-rama. Already. Could be. Uh, so we're definitely going to be covering the by-election like absolute fiends because we do love a good election. We do love a good campaign. And this will be something of a litmus test for the uh, next general election, whenever that is. Um, could be an all-female lineup. Uh, you have big... Uh, well-known candidates, um, potentially, definitely, uh, Ivana Bacic will be seeking the nomination from Labour. Hazel Chu will probably be seeking the nomination from the I Greens. Love, it's been on the radio. It's really like, and then you have the Hazel Chu situation. <laughs> <laughs> it's really like, oh God. And if somebody was like, look, the fact is, her name and Ryan hate each other. It's like, oh my God, this is really escalated. There's going to be multi, there's a drama of the campaign. There's the drama of the inter-party and intra-party uh, jostling. Um, there's going to be Sinn Féin presumably throwing everything they can at it. There's going to be Finnegan. Yeah, Finnegal desperate to uh, retain that seat. Will Kate O'Connell run? Well, this kite flying about, you know, potentially Lucinda Creighton coming back into the fold. Um, you, you, you can't see my face right you now. You can't see, you can't see Andrea's face right now. Um, anyway, it's going to be dramatic and it'll be in the next six months and we will be bringing it all to you and we'll try and do as many interviews as well with the candidates um, for the laws. Other things that happened, very, very sad news about Jigsaw closing down in Dublin City, one of the last alternative spaces in the city. Um, I think I'm going to be writing about it this week, actually. Uh, it's a place that's very close to my heart from when it was Shomer Spree. Um, just one of those places where you could actually 
step outside of the homogeny and corporate nonsense uh, that the city has become in many ways and that socialising wasn't driven by profit or lameness. Um, So I'm really sorry about that. Shout out to everyone who built and made communities in that space and kept it going for so long. Hopefully, with the upcoming commercial property crash, uh, there will be many more places to choose from. Um, Your pal Arlene Foster has resigned from the DUV. She did. She just felt like it was time. It was just her own choice. She's just like, you know what, I'd love a bit of free time to myself. Uh, no, there was. A, she basically abstained from voting on gay conversion therapy. So, And that was too liberal for the DUP. Too liberal to abstain and not say no. So 75 DUP people uh, voted a vote of no confidence in her. And then, shabam, she's toast. Um, I am very divided on this because sometimes I'm like, better the devil you know and better the devil. So it's like, who's going to replace her and what is going to come next if she was the liberal leader? Well, I mean, if they move uh, to the right further, um, they'll just, you know, implode further. So come what may is what I say. I also think it's absolutely rotten with regards to the this kind of thing around gay conversion therapy, you know, and it's, it's certainly reading about it in media. It's like, oh yeah, the gay conversion therapy. And it's like, there's no gravity given to the fact of how abhorrent uh, that is, you know, that, that this is a, a mechanism to essentially like erase and get rid of gay people. Um, and it's, it's absolutely vile. So, uh, I- my friend did a tweet of like, I wonder if there's straight conversion therapy. Drag race. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. And speaking of um, not liking uh, people with healthy sexualities, uh, Catholic bishops are back in their zone writing uh, the RSE curriculum and the sex education. Obviously, no better group of lads uh, to be laying down the law um, This their weird language about puberty being a gift from God uh, you know just practical advice like that um, well, they did also say sex is a gift from God agreed <laughs> <laughs> alright let's get to our main topic today it's scores fires Okay, so there's been multiple gorse fires raging in Ireland recently. Um, in the Moran Mountains, a massive fire took three days to extinguish, uh, believed to be started deliberately. The fire extended three and a half kilometres over the mountains. The National Trust said that they were, quote, devastated to see the impact the fire has had on the fragile habitat of Upper Schlieve Donard. Or Donard. Uh, this area of outstanding natural beauty has been completely destroyed and will take years to recover. In Killarney, half of Killarney National Park has been lost in these gorse fires. It's Um, like, I was about to say it's absolutely bananas, but it's like, it's seven fruits up from a banana, how bananas it is. And in Cork, the same thing. There have also been gorse fires. And I know that there's a lot going on right now, but it seems so mad that this disaster is unfolding. And I guess it's, it, it it does unfold every year, but it seems to be 
getting worse, maybe, or maybe it's our perspective on it is colored by really sh- like horrific uh, wildlife fires in other parts of the world. Maybe, you know, certain things that seem normalized for so many years uh, in agriculture, for example, that it's like, oh, no, this is the time where you just burn all the stuff. You know, as people gain perspectives and we look at, you know, the desecration of the planet, start to go like, this is not normal. Like, this is not something we should be doing. So we're going to talk about it. Uh, It's a difficult topic, but we have a really, really great guest on to bring you more information and thankfully some solutions and uh, uh, bring some kind of optimism to how we can progress. I was thinking about this. Don't you know when the Amazon was burning and there was like all these like filters and Insta things that you could do, like stop the fires. I think we need to get that going in Ireland. So everyone's on their TikToks going stop the fires. Let's do it. Pork Fogarty is a campaign officer with the Irish Wildlife Trust and editor of Irish Wildlife magazine. And you can listen to his podcast as well, Shaping New Mountains, on various podcast platforms. Thanks a million for joining us to talk about this, Pork. My pleasure. Thanks for the invite. Now, it is a depressing topic, let's face it, but we also have to kind of confront it um, with, with a degree of urgency. But just for people who may not be familiar with, you know, gorse burning and things like that. What's the rationale behind it and what's been the situation with it over the last few years? Yes, I, I think in, in some ways this has been going on for so long, it's almost been like, you know, a background to April and May every year. And, you know, it's kind of been brushed off as, oh, this is just normal practice. Uh, but what we've seen in recent years is that these fires seem to be more numerous. And sometimes when they do happen, they, they really do get completely out of control and cover huge areas. Uh, we saw half of Killarney National Park burned to the ground last weekend, the Morn Mountains again, and lots of other smaller fires that didn't make the news but would have had serious impacts on nature for instance there was a the loss of a of a hen harrier nest uh, in county limerick last weekend and a hen harrier is a bird of prey that is one of our most threatened species so one of the problems is that this is so widespread so frequent happening every year that really it has resulted in the collapse of the uh, the natural ecosystems in these areas now why it's happening uh, has been, uh, you know, it's if if you listen to uh, ministers who uh, and farm leaders, you'll be told, oh, you know, the public has to be careful with our barbecues, and maybe this is someone throwing a cigarette butt out the window, or even we hear that it's bits of broken glass, and and really, this is just not credible uh, to be to be saying these things. Now, so I mean, we know, for instance, that in in Ireland, fires don't start naturally; uh, they do in Australia and California where you have months where it doesn't rain and then you have a lightning strike. Not This doesn't happen in Ireland. So we'd, we'd be pretty confident all of these fires are deliberately set. Some of them, I'm sure, are just, you know, just blatant vandalism, just people with nothing better to do than to set fire to their surroundings. But 
we have to acknowledge that a main driver of them is agricultural practices in the hills. And this is something that nobody seems to want to talk about uh, in within you know the authorities um, because it is confronting what is seen as a traditional agricultural practice. Uh, but it's, it's, it's really just it's endangering lives at the moment. As I say, it's already resulted in massive ecological destruction. And it's not just the impacts to the to the plants and the animals. I mean, uh, there's a warning now in Killarney that if there's heavy rain, all that ash and soot is going to be washed into water courses, which ultimately ends up in our taps. And, uh, and of course, it's the air that we breathe. And then for the people who live in these areas, they're literally living in fear now uh, every time there's a good weather forecast in April and May, uh, because they know there's a good chance that their hill is going to go on fire. Can I just take a step back a little bit and ask two questions? Uh, firstly, you say that this is an agricultural um, process, but what is the why would you why would like for people who don't maybe know about agricultural uh, processes, why would you burn uh, the ground? And then I suppose there's a commentary around this that it's cap related. So maybe uh, then if you could tell us what cap is and how they're related. So from from the dawn of time, man has used fire to clear land. Uh, it's a very powerful tool. Uh, it's it's obviously very effective at, at doing what people wanted to do. Uh, and you know, going back, I mean, you you'll see Aboriginal cultures in Australia have used fires for literally tens of thousands of years. So for for if you want your animals to get access onto a space onto the hill, for instance, and let's say it's overgrown, uh, you can spend months going in there with hand tools trying to clear the vegetation, or you can put a match in it and do that job overnight. And a lot of the time you get fresh growth of grass. This it's, it changes the vegetation. So sheep don't like eating gorse and tall bushes. They do like eating grass. So if you can, if you can, uh, switch from, from the bushes to the grass, that is a good thing from the grazing. Now, um, the reason why it is linked to payments. Now, the Common Agricultural Policy, or the CAP for short, is how the European Union spends an awful lot of its money on subsidising farming. And nearly every farmer in Ireland is, receipt, is in receipt of what's called the basic payment. It used to be called the check in the post, uh, but this is basically the subsidy scheme that we give to farmers. Now, in order to get that payment, the farmer has to prove that uh, their land is in what is called eligible condition. In other words, that it is grazable land, that it is actually being used for food production and it has farm animals on it. Now, that might sound sensible, but the, uh, the perverse side of it is that if you have bushes, if you have wildlife habitat, if you have trees on your land, they're not eligible. And so uh, the incentive, therefore, is for the farmer to get rid of the wildlife habitat, to drain the wetlands, to clear away the bushes, uh, to fell the trees. And we've seen massive amounts of that. And so uh, one of the things we feel we really, really need to see is a move away from just rewarding farmers for producing food and legs of lamb uh, and sides of beef and also to be rewarding them for the nature that they have on their farm. Yeah, because the EU is, is spending money on this anyway, right? And also over the years, I mean, since really the 80s, I guess, uh, you hear these sporadic stories about um, excess food being produced, particularly, you know, dairy, you know, the famous or infamous butter mountains and all that kind of stuff. 
surely it would make like if they're paying the money out anyway, could and could the money not go to like a, a proportion of cap be uh, predicated on um, the preservation of biodiversity and wildlife in a particular part of what up until then was, you know, agricultural land, let's say. Yes, and that has been one of the stated aims of the CAP uh, now for many years. Now, one of the problems is that um, uh, the farming organisations, the big lobby groups, have campaigned to make sure that those subsidies are spread as far and as evenly as possible, so that, in other words, every farmer can apply and receive uh, some of these grants. So there's there's something called a greening payment within the basic scheme and there's other uh, environmental uh, uh, programs that farmers can join uh, to supplement their income. But unfortunately, and this is one of the double, the, 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 you know, subsidies are kind of a double-edged sword. Yes, they support farmers' incomes, but they also make farmers dependent upon that income. And so for that reason, uh, the farming organizations have made sure that basically everybody gets a slice of the pie. Uh, and so the measures that are required of farmers to meet these are, are, are practically, they, they go from either doing absolutely nothing to doing things or, that are completely pointless. So, for instance, farmers get paid for putting uh, uh, bird boxes on their land or uh, piles of sand for bees, uh, even though there's no scientific evidence that any of this does any good for, you know, the, the very many endangered species we have. So, we don't get the results that we expect we get for, and you're right, I mean, I think the figure is 2 billion euro a year that we spend on in from taxpayers' money that goes to farmers in Ireland. So vast amount of money and we're getting very little in return for it at the moment from an environmental point of view. How it would it be how would it be measurable, I suppose, when you're dealing in a commercial way with farming, how do you make it valuable to keep the wilded areas? Um, so there's maybe two ways you could do that. One is to say to the farmer, look, you don't have to farm every square inch of your land. Uh, you know, and, and this was, you know, this is, there's ancient knowledge in this as well. Far, farmers in the olden days, they knew which bits of their land was good for grazing and they knew which bits weren't. And they used to refer to it as the hare's corner. Mm. And, you know, they'd say, well, that's, that bit there is not worth my while. It's too wet or it's too bushy or whatever. And it was no big deal. Uh, but now the subsidies uh, have, have done away with that. The other way is what's called results-based schemes. Now, I don't know if any of you have been to the the, the Burren in County Clare. Yeah. Well, the burn is magnificent. I mean, it is really uh, one of the most amazing landscapes we have in Ireland. And what they're doing in the burn is they're not just giving farmers a subsidy as, as you know, a, a kind of a payment support or a crutch. They're saying to the farmers, look, this is what we want, you know, as a society. We want your fields to be full of wildflowers and full of uh, wildlife and uh, insects and so on. And we want you to keep the stone walls. And the better you can do that, the more money you will get. So we're not telling you what to do. We're telling you what we want and you decide how to get to that point. And uh, And it's worked very, very well. The farmers in the Burren do very well out of it. Uh, the public does very well out of it uh, because we know that our heritage and our landscape is being preserved uh, and it is backed up by science and data. So we know that it's actually working. Now, you might say to yourself, well, why aren't we doing this everywhere? And of course, the problem is that if you follow that uh, rationale across Ireland, you would see a big drop in 
production. We wouldn't be producing as much beef. We wouldn't be producing as much dairy. And of course, there's nothing in it then for the big processors uh, and the meat factories. And so you can see all of these uh, debates end up in uh, the power relation between our politicians and, and the big lobby groups that drive huge volumes of production, uh, large amount of exports, huge amounts of money being made. But uh, it's disastrous for nature and it's disastrous for an awful lot of farmers as well. So it's kind of important, I guess, to reach a kind of whole society a solution to this or 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 progress at least that protects um the country and 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 the biodiversity is to separate the farmer from you know big farm from big beef or things like that right because i think farmers are often um quite defensive about being uh, pulled up on you know quote unquote environmental grounds and you hear a lot of stuff like, well, you know, farmers know more about the land than, than anyone else and they should be the ones who 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 make the calls on this. But it, what you're identifying is that it's actually more about, you know, uh, an export facing, uh, high producing, land squeezing industry that is, uh, you know, pushing things maybe or, or defending things at a policy level rather than, you know, uh, a family with 50 acres or something like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I can totally see why farmers must be exasperated at this point because we've spent the last 30, 40 years, certainly since we entered the European Union, saying to farmers, farmer, we want you to produce more food and this is how to do it. We want you to, uh, you know, remove the wildlife habitat, drain the wetlands, uh, put artificial fertilizer on your land so you're, you're, you're um, growing more grass um, and we want you to drain your land and that of course leads to flooding and pollution and other things. And this is, and, and you know, there's a whole... Um, uh, government body like Chagask is the is the farm advisory body putting out this advice to this day, and all of those things are working against nature. And in the meantime, then farmers are probably listening to people like me giving it to them in the ear all the time about fires on hills and pollution of rivers and you know the, the fact that the bees in the fields don't have anything to eat. So you can see that they've they've, they've been doing what they've been asked to do. And, this, and the payments have supported that. And yet uh, there's this enormous pushback against them now because of greenhouse gas emissions and other environmental pressures. But of course, it is, it is this system that is uh, driving it at the end of the day. Um, if our politicians are coming out and saying this is barbecues or cigarettes that is causing these fires, and so there's no real call out for, the, for what's happening, how do we move to a position where policy could actually be changed to stop this? Um, I think, uh, I mean, there, there are, there are things that can be done. Um, uh, but of course we have to recognize the problem and we have to recognize that the problem exists and, uh, difficult and all that as, as that may be. We also need to recognize that, uh, the hills in Ireland, uh, you know they've been completely ignored from a policy point of view. They're, they're not productive from any kind of food system you know you're not you're not getting dairy farms up on the tops of mountains so really there's no money to be made out of it but they're enormously important areas uh, uh 
both from a historical and a cultural and heritage point of view, uh, from a biodiversity point of view. And they're covered in peatlands, which are one of the greatest stocks of carbon that we have. And yet we're, we're turning it into smoke. Uh, so how do we... How do we flip it around? There's some difficult things that we have to do. Uh, and one of those is I think we have to get away from sheep farming in our hills, just, just sending tens of thousands of sheep to roam across the hills uh, uh, throughout the winter and summer. That has to stop. Um, we have to uh, invest in restoring uh, bogs and peatlands like we're doing in the midlands. We have to do that across the uplands. Um, that will mean employment. That will mean economic opportunities. Um, we need to get rid of all these awful conifer plantations that were put on our bogs in the 1950s and 60s that, again, are contributing to a lot of the environmental problems. Uh, they could be converted into native woodlands. I mean, one of the things that was very interesting, if you go back and look at the footage from Killarney National Park, which is famous for its ancient oak forest. The ancient oak forest didn't burn. Mm. It was the bits around the edge of the ancient oak forest that went on fire uh, mostly. And that's telling us something. That's telling us that our native forests are not flammable. And the land wants to be a native forest. You know, if you were to pretty much, if you were to do nothing, the forest would return. So we need to be restoring our native woodlands. You know, our, the, the, our native woodlands are pretty, you know, in terms of their extent, they were one of the most deforested countries in the world. Less than 2% of our land is native woodland. Uh, most European countries reach about 30%. Uh, so there's a huge opportunity there, I think, if we were to think big, restore the bogs, restore our beautiful oak forests and pay the landowners to do that. Now, some landowners will say, absolutely not. I'm a farmer. My father was a farmer and so on. And it's in my blood and I'll do it till I die. And I totally recognize the very important cultural role that livestock farming has played in our in our history and culture. But you can say to those farmers, look, that's fine, but we, we need you to do farming in a high nature value way like they're doing in the Burren, probably with uh, smaller numbers of, of cattle, for instance, um, and do it in an environmentally sensitive way. And I can see that as being part of, part of the problem. But at the moment, uh, those options just aren't there for, for farmers in those areas. Before you go, can I ask you something about the hills? Because I was reading um, something a while ago about uh, there's an awful lot of kind of majesty and and uh, strangeness sometimes in the in the bareness of of Irish hills, and a lot of that, I suppose, is cyclical burning as well. Um, and people take that to be our traditional landscape, but there's some thinking that actually we had, you know, a rainforest type coverage in in our mountains and in our hills, and that if we're thinking big, that that's something we should be looking at uh, restoring, essentially. Where, where do you stand on that? Yes, I, I, I totally agree. And it is an interesting thing that we've grown up looking at our bare hills and they're on postcards and this is what Ireland looks like and isn't it beautiful. But as an ecologist, you go there and you go, these places are next to dead. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, there's, there's more bird life in my back garden than there is in a lot of these hills now. But we hold on to... 
these uh, these images of what we feel should be right. And it can be quite hard to let go of that at times. But if you go to other European countries, the mountains is where the, the, the wilderness is. It's where the wildlife is. It's where the bears and the wolves still roam. Uh, and yet uh, in places like Ireland and Britain as well, actually, are the, the, the hills are, are more barren frequently than the lowlands. So I think... Uh, 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 finding I suppose what's required there is a, is a kind of a cultural shift in how we look at our landscape and how we interact with our landscape um, but I think that if we do that God it's, it's such enormous opportunities I mean I think if you imagine those hills with you know that beautiful uh, deciduous oak forest on it again you know not only is it soaking up carbon and cleaning water and providing habitat for wildlife but what an amazing amenity that would be for for local people and 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 i I also think like what a project that would be for ireland to restore our our forest and i think that would be something that everybody could get behind last question what can our listeners do to get the show on the road with this uh gorse fire ending life it's, it can be awfully frustrating uh, for people looking at these hap- these things happening. There's an awful sense of powerless powerlessness uh, when you know when you see these things happening. How on earth can we can we change anything? But I, I do feel as an environmental activist, we're extraordinarily lucky to live in a democracy. We're extraordinarily lucky that we can challenge uh, politicians and power without the fear of anybody coming to our door late at night. That's not the case in many countries. So I think we have to find that, uh, that voice. We have to get on to our politicians and tell them to do something about it, uh, that we know the solutions are there and that we want uh, we want things to be different. Unfortunately, if politicians are not hearing it, then it's not a problem for them. So they have to be hearing it. Gorse on the doors. It is Porrick Fogarty. Thanks so much uh, from the Irish Wildlife Trust. Really appreciate your insight. Thank you so much. Andrea, what's getting in the sea this week? This week is an, like, it kind of feels like a convergence of a many moments because uh, Keena Callaghan from the Social Democrats was giving out about the amount of housing that's being bought up by vulture funds and that, um, that so much of our, of our housing stock, like it's not actually about building and supply a lot of the time it's about that it's all actually being bought in by industri- institutional investors um, so he's having a little rant about that fair point and Leo Varadkar came back and said that they, he needed to have a rounded view on institutional investors buying up housing blocks and that he shouldn't be so ideological about housing I just can't understand how you can say don't be ideological when you're actually ruling out the possibility of stopping investor groups buying housing when we have a homeless crisis. Also, this is the th- the gaslighting thing around ideology the Finnegal do all the time. Everybody else is ideological apart from them, despite the fact that they are operating from actually an entrenched, regressive, stupid ideological position. And either they're so dumb that they cannot actually self-reflect enough to see their own ideology on housing, which is worrying, 
or they just decide to use this line as something that like ideology only belongs to what they perceive to be the quote unquote left and that they're just like administrators of some kind of corporate Ireland that needs, you know, payroll and jobs uh, filled or whatever. You know, it's very frustrating. It's just like this kind of constant stance of like Fine Gael people. It's like, don't ask me. I just work here. I just do these things. It's like, um, and they're completely de- decontextualized, right? You're not a product of your environment at all. You have zero context for how you're doing and nothing ever class, education, upbringing, perspective, political leanings has ever colored any kind of ideology. And you're some kind of pure snow specter that just like does little bits and none of that has any fucking context. Get a grip. <laughs> do you know what it feels like when you hear someone going, don't be so ideological. It's like when someone says, like, you're annoying. And they're like, yeah, you're annoying. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know I, mean? I know you are, but like, what am I? I? <laughs> That's what it sounds like. So silly. That can get in the sea. What's bananas, though? Do you know what's bananas? I just can't get my head around it. And the fact that the Debenhams workers are still protesting a year later to get their redundancy. I just don't understand why they don't just give them their redundancy payments. Like, it's just outrageous. And this week we saw um, stories of the Gardaí removing Debenhams workers and uh, helping KPMG break their protest by removing stock in the middle of the night um, in Henry Street. And I suppose before there's a big question over that because before you couldn't, you would never break a strike. So because if it, I don't want to make this about sexism, but you've got a, a load of women who are striking now and it feels like if they were men in coal mines, you wouldn't break a strike, whereas it's women in retail. So you have this, the guardie breaking strikes. And also the fact that obviously the Dublin workers are also looking for a kind of um, policy change as well with regards to how people, how how to stop corporations like doing a little liquidation dance and, and, and somehow removing their um, the asset, assets and stuff like that from what people are then entitled to in terms of redundancy. But like what's so annoying is the conservatism of the moment where you know in 10 years time people will be like literal politicians from the same parties who are doing nothing for them now will be like, well, they were just such brave people and la 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 in the same way that they were about the Dunn strikers, you know, and it's just like sort it out now so you don't have to atone later and pretend that that you were on board. Anyway, up the Debenhams workers, get your bits. Everybody should support them. And now it's time for our fave bits. Andrea. What a delightful menu, a plethora, a smorgasbord, an antipasti, a buffet of fave bits we have this week. Oh my God, let's go. It feels like the time is right for positivity. Here we go. My first fave bit. Clubbing is culture. Uh, The documentary made by No More Hotels, Think House and Algorithm featuring illuminaries such as yourself, Hazel Chu, Philly McMahon, Mona Lisa and uh, John Mangrew is being shown in the VNA in Dundee. Uh, the VNA is the International Design Museum, and they are showing it as part of a bigger exhibition of Night Fever. 
And I am very excited about that because that we started this whole project to kind of illuminate the fact that clubbing was culture in itself. And the fact that it's gone full circle and is now in a gallery. And it goes back to my question all the time of what is art and does place uh, inform the viability of and validity of art? Uh, this kind of feels like it's doing that for clubbing, if that makes sense. I, for one, am very proud of you, Andrea. I think when you look back on the pandemic and think, I did nothing. What do I do? It's like you made a documentary that's now in the V&A. <laughs> so well done. It's amazing. How brilliant is that? It is so good. I'm so I'm delighted. Um, yeah. And to, to see Dublin in there in the mix amongst New York and Glasgow and London and blah, blah, blah. It's just, yeah, great. Fab. The, the only downside, and we talked about this, is don't you know uh, the the joy of making these things is the connections and experiences of seeing them come to life and not being able to do that and go and like we would have all flown over to Dundee and had a night there and seen it and it's just so sad but anyway it's really good as well uh on another note uh looking at the the future uh brightening up and what's to come um, a new festival, Brightening Air, is coming about. It is a nationwide arts event, um, which is planned to celebrate brighter days as Ireland reopens. And there's uh, loads of gorgeous interactive um, art pieces being done all over the country. And it's that's what I think I love about it so much is that there's something kind of all over the country, um, as opposed to just being in one part. And you can do like loads of experiences like um there's 180 degree films um richard moss is uh the artist who did the uh um installations about the mediterranean migration crisis around a triple screen in kilkenny also there's that thing in the massive bra- uh kind of vacant brown factory in carlo Carlo, which Woman in a machine yeah which that factory which is empty rave city make it happen Waterford Walls are going to transform street murals into augmented realities and um, experiment with public art. There's so much. You should just go and have a look. Um, and it's, I think it's a really ambitious project that is really good to see that, like bringing so many makers and doers and so much on it. Yeah, we're going to have to get Nisha Nunn, who's one of the people behind that, uh, on the pod to talk about how you actually do something of this scale uh, at this time. Haha, um, <laughs> now we've said it online, he has to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, another fave bit is that organisers have said that there's been no sign of coronavirus infection among 5,000 unvaccinated people who took part in an indoor trial concert last month in Barcelona. Woo! Yes, the future is events eventually. Uh, so that is so, such good news. And also... Leah Vracker wants our trial to be a Leinster match. Like, I like rugby, <laughs> but could we not do something different? <laughs> oh Come, on. Come on! Come <laughs> on! The D Fortress rocks on. Uh, oh my God, I love it. Squanster. Um, but there's another event happening in Liverpool. I think it's this weekend. Mm. Uh, Circus are running it and that's another trial. So we'll be watching that, how that goes. And um, that's a more club-based one, right? Yeah. Uh, it's a foot, like it's a whopper lineup. It looks wild. How do I get to be a COVID infection trial tester and go to all of the events you just register oh yeah you just have to register for circus can't travel though okay go on uh, next joanne mcnally uh was on the jonathan ross show phenomenal like, phenomenal 
Banana Chan, just like being booked as a guest on like the UK's biggest chat show on a Saturday night. Aaron Boy George. Insanely good. So delighted. Uh, also uh, delighted to see um, a new podcast called Pause Vibe, which is being brought to you by Veda and Robbie Lawler. Um, and it is about, uh, there's a lot of podcasts, it's about uh, HIV positive uh, status, but instead of being like an education or like a, a, a dour experience, it's about, it's a, po- it's a podcast for those who are positive and their allies to uh, talk about their journey and to share with others in an empowering way and, 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 and remove a lot of the stigma around it and to, to bring uh, that status into a, a new level. So uh, big up to the two of them. I'm really excited about that. And this is a random fave bit because it's not <laughs> cultural, but I just loved it so much. It made me laugh so much this week. So uh, there was the... The unveiling of the centenary, centen- what centenary, what? yeah, centenary celebrations in Dublin Castle, and they uh, were Michal Martin, Leo Recker, and Catherine Martin were in, and they were shown the pen that was the treaty pen, apparently that was used in the treaty, and Leo Leo Recker was like, "How do you know it's the treaty pen?" <laughs> like, imagine you're, uh, how do you know? A child, like, are you a child? <laughs> Michal Martin just turned around and called him a doubting Thomas. <laughs> And I just think that is just the best, most Irish thing you've ever heard. Imagine them all just being there and like, you're such a doubting. <laughs> also, uh, uh, I love that. I also, love Leah, just like, how do you know? It's like, oh my God, you're literally one of those blokes in school. <laughs> you're at the ceremony and they're telling you, just that's how you know. <laughs> <laughs> a monkey nearly pissed on uh, Micheál Martin when he did a photo call in the zoo on Monday. Just another moment for for Auntie Shock this year or this week. Um, okay, here are my five bits. Go. They're all over the place, but I'm just going to roll with it. Okay. Shook, which is a restaurant in Drumcondra in Dublin, doing delivery and takeaway. My mates are always banging on about it. I never got an opportunity to try it. I went on a day trip to Drumcondra and Clontarf, very exciting, at the weekend. And I got the falafel pitta. And it was one of the best falafel pittas I've ever had. So I'd highly recommend that. I think it's eight euro. I have never heard the end of how great Shook is. Yeah, it's really, really delicious. As a vegetarian, I really should be getting all over that. Definitely. My other fave bits, Reggie Snow has announced that he's a new album coming this summer. Very excited about that. Um, more music bits as well that are in my fave bits. One of my favorite festivals is Airwaves in Reykjavik. And uh, won't be gone this year. Doubt very much. It's on in November. And there's been a few Irish acts announced for it, including Denise Chyla, Smooth Boy Ezra and Thumper are playing. So well done to them. Um yeah. Why do you not think you're going to be going in November? I want to go to Roshan in Berlin in October. Tell me it's true, it's happening. I think that I just wouldn't buy tickets and a flight and accommodation when I'm not vaccinated and I don't know what the situation's going to be. So. Okay, so I'm going to be optimistic. Can't wait for Roshan. Yeah. Okay. Um, my other fave bits Alison Bechdel has a new book coming out called The Secret to Superhuman Strength. Alison Bechdel, of course, the iconic queer lesbian uh, graphic novelist and comic book artist, 
uh, who made one of my favorite. Gra- oh, actually, no, it is my favorite graphic novel of all time, Fun Home, which then turned into this massively successful musical. Um, I just she's a genius, basically. Um, and also when you hear people talk about the Bechdel test, about women in film representation, that's her. That was oh my a, God. Yeah, that was a line from one of her uh, early comics. She used to do this comic series called Dykes to Watch Out For. And that oh was God. one of the things that, that, that basically one of the characters said in one of the little uh, comic strips and that became known as the Bechdel test. Oh my God, I'd love to have the Horn test. The Horn test. Oh, well, what would the Horn test actually be? Listeners, if you have any ideas of what the Horn test would be, do let us know. My final fave bit was the documentary on RTE this week. There's also an accompanying podcast, Gunplot, uh, about the arms trial and the arms crisis. I just thought it was a really great history lesson, basically, and just showed you how absolutely crazy uh the the situation was the story was and the sadness of it of of what was happening in the north as well uh shout out to Roshi Nodi who was the researcher on that did an absolutely amazing job um really like getting like the it, the fact that it, they could play the tapes from the trial the actual tapes from the actual trial for the first time just really phenomenal and you could tell by the reaction on Twitter that people were really into it. And yeah, so when RTE gets it right in docs, um, it really, really gets it right. And now, book of the week, book of the week, book of the week. Andrew still hasn't done a jingle for this. Uh, waiting for the jingle, Andrew. Um, I but- just think if we get blankety blank and cut out blankety blank and put in book of the week. Okay, Uh uh, obviously, we're gonna we're yeah, not production meeting live on air. <laughs> we're clearly not going to do that. But if Andrew wants to do that, go right ahead. Nah, not gonna do that. How about this? Book of the week. Book of the week. Book of the week. 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 Uh, so my book of the week is called Reverie. It's a photo book, or like it's kind of photo zine. Uh, by uh, Jack Scollard and Jordan Hearns of photographs that were shot on nights out basically um, in Dublin and Berlin and other places and it just the steam and sweat of club nights just comes off the page it's 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 a it's a zine for now because it is bringing back that yearning that now does seem possible at some stage in the future about going out and being with your friends and being in packed rooms and being at after parties and having wild nights out. Oh, oh sorry. Just lost myself there for a moment. <laughs> so it's a really great one. It's called Reverie. Uh, you can pick it up in a couple of places, including Hen's Teeth in Dublin 8. Um, and yeah, do it. Support support Irish artists. This podcast is produced by Andrew Mang and a Castaway Media. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack. Sarah Fox did all our design. Uh, what is the tuna chicken roll this week? This week it is, I was going to go like, I was trying to find a song that was like, we're coming out of like lockdown, but I didn't manage to. Out the gaff. You could have picked out the gaff. What's that? With the God Knows and Circa Richardson, the one that James Insert Morrow produced. Oh, okay. And Denise. Okay. But you have another one. Well, I can't, I feel scabby now. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude, come on, stick, stick, stick to your guns. The one I picked is called Don't Call Desire. And it's just, it's in keeping with my theme of the last few weeks of like some sunny, 
box of optimistic joy and potential. My favourite word at the moment. I've been Una Mullally. I've been Andrea Horan. This has been United Ireland. And that was Gorse Fires or Big Farm Ah. Uh,